Hey everybody, it's Father Edward Looney, the host of How They Love Mary. When I began this podcast back in 2019, I had a vision, and that was one day I would publish a book called How They Love Mary. Over my life as a writer and researcher, I have read the writings of many holy men and women and many saints, and I have discovered how they loved the Blessed Mother and they have inspired me. I'm excited to share that at the end of April, Sophia Institute Press will release the book, How They Love Mary, 28 Life-Changing Stories of Marian Devotion. It features saints like St. Damien of Molokai, St. Francis of Assisi, St. Therese of Lisieux, and other unknown people like Mother Mary Francis from Roswell, New Mexico, or Father Lucas Etlin, a monk who died back in the early 1900s from Conception Abbey in Missouri. I am so excited for How They Love Mary to hit bookshelves and to get into your hands so that you might deepen your devotion to the Blessed Mother. Get How They Love Mary from Sophia Institute Press or wherever you get your Catholic books. Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you are listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. There are lots of books that have been written about Mary, and many of you have read some of my own writings about the Blessed Mother. These books get published by publishers, and then they market and they sell the book to audiences such as yourself. During the season of Lent, as now we're here in the middle of the season of Lent, maybe you've undertaken some spiritual reading. You acquired a book that you thought would be good for your Lenten meditation. As we approach Holy Week, there are a few more books that maybe one of these three books we're going to talk about today might pick your interest. And you might say, this is a book I want to read during the week of Jesus' Passion and Death on the Cross from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. Today, I'm speaking with Kristen Van Uden, who received an MA in History from the College of William and Mary in 2019. She previously studied the persecution of Catholics under communist regimes, a timely topic for today, probably. She now researches contemporary Catholic saints and miracles, and she serves as an author spokesperson for Sophia Institute Press. And so, basically, she's the individual who talks about books by authors who are deceased, books that they're bringing back into print. So I'm very excited to have this conversation with you today, Kristen. Good morning, Father. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so you work for Sophia Institute Press, and I'm very honored and blessed by Sophia Institute Press, uh, for they published three books that I've written. Actually, the third one Mm -hmm. is going to be coming out in April. But the first book was A Lenten Journey with Mother Mary, and that book has been widely received quite well, and I'm very honored by the Amazon reviews people have left. And so A Lenten Journey with Mother Mary, Meditations After Holy Communion, which was inspired by my love for the priest Father Daniel Lord. And then my new book, 
is the title book of this podcast, How They Love Mary, 28 Life-Changing Stories About Mary and Devotion. And that's coming out next month. So I'm very honored to be an author with Sophia Institute Press. And even when I was a young person, you know, kind of growing up, uh, you know, from teenage years into into a young adult years, uh, I was aware of Sophia Institute Press and the many titles in their catalog. And so now to be in that catalog is uh, an a blessing for me. So tell me first, how did you come to land a job at Sophia Institute Press? Yeah, so this is really a dream job, isn't it? I get paid to read books and talk about them, uh, not to mention the free books that we get as employees. So it's kind of a dream come true, and my, my bookshelves have been filled even more than I thought that they could be. Um, but yes, really, I, I came to the job through prayer, really, um, just asking God's will for my life, and I definitely feel that it's a wonderful fit. Um, and it's it's wonderful every day to go to work knowing that our mission is the glory of God. It's not merely a job that you have to offer up, for example, <laughs> as many jobs seem, can seem like that. It's every day I, I know that I'm working for the greater glory of God and building His kingdom on earth. Um and we have definitely loved working with you and promoting your books in the past. I think we offer such a great combination of classic reprints, like the three titles we'll discuss today, with the newest and up-and-coming um, titles from big Catholic names. For example, Bishop Athanasius Schneider writes for us, and really something for everyone, something for all ages, um, with that common goal in mind. And. Maybe let's just talk a little bit about how does a book get published? I know the process because I've done it myself, but people listening, they don't realize all the work that goes on to make a book come to your mailbox, whether you buy it from Amazon.com, from Sophia Institute Press, or you go to your local Catholic bookstore. So what's that process? Yeah, so there are several ways in uh, which a book can come to fruition. So during our production meetings, we brainstorm ideas of, you know, we have our ears to the ground in the Catholic media world and in the parishes and just the greater Catholic world at large about what would be, think would be appealing to people, what people are asking for, yearning for, and really need, um, which of course is very dependent on the times we live in and um, the particular gaps that need to be filled in the industry. So um, some books come to us through proposals that authors propose directly to us, a written proposal with their ideas. Um, some come from networking in the industry, networking with Catholic media personalities, authors, clergy, um, lay people alike, and um, getting ideas that way. And then others, of course, are drawn from the great treasury of Catholic traditional works that we have for the past 2,000 years. So reprints, um, of course, have to figure out who has copyright to what, of course, but uh, reprints from the Treasury of Catholic Wisdom that we think would have a particular application to today's world. So you get a proposal, you discover a book, something like that. So then for mm -hmm. me, for example, I propose a book. I want to write How They Love Mary. I send you a sample chapter. You accept it. So then I go through, I write my first draft. It then goes to the acquisitions editor who makes edits sends them back to me. I maybe have to develop something or whatever the case might be. And then that gets sent on to another editor who kind of does the fine-tune editing. Then they make it into a book, so they place format it or whatever that's called. And mm -hmm. then 
And then afterwards, they send it to another person. The final proofreader is my experience, who then just yeah. goes through it with like this fine tooth comb, making sure every word is there and that no word has been missed and such. So um, mm -hmm. that's a long process. And then it has to get printed. And right now, in the day and age that we live, there is a paper shortage. And so as an yeah. author with a book expected to come out, you know, I'm a little <laughs> worried. <laughs> well, will the book be able to be available for people? Of course, the Kindle version is an ebook version will be available, but you wonder about these things. So, so it is a long process. What's the average time it takes from proposal to publication, do you think, for a book to get out there? Yeah. So the general rule of thumb is probably within a year, um, and that would be the minimum, I would say, from the idea where, uh, the beginning where the idea is first being presented, uh, depending on writing time. I know some authors write more quickly than others, and um, they generally try to meet that year deadline, but that is, as you can imagine, uh, a very well-planned out process and something that you, you know, when you think of an idea, a year ahead of its publication date, you have to think, is this something that is timeless, that will be relevant, even if the news cycle changes in a year, or even if, um, you know, different topics are coming to, to light in a year, is this something that will still be timely and still be well-received? Um, so, yes, that process of editing and proofreading is spot on. Uh, we also, of course, with the paper shortages, <laughs> are uh, the, it is posing a challenge to the industry right now, but we've seems to be on track for most of our titles so far. So fingers crossed. Uh, we'll pray that that continues. Um, <clears throat> but yes, this is, people often think like, oh, like a, a book that's a new release must have been thought of just a few months ago. But no, it's been in the works for almost a full year. And by the time that it comes to your mailbox, um, that is the end of its long journey. And then from there on, um, its, its journey continues as we promote it in the media and as podcasters discuss the ideas and place them in conversation with other titles. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's an ongoing, very dynamic process. If I had to guess, I would say I signed my contract for How They Love Mary maybe in April or May of last year. So you would be okay. correct. And it's a full year process almost. Now, I delayed in writing it. I could have written it a lot quicker <laughs> than I did, but I like to enjoy the summer months sometimes and I do some traveling <laughs> and things like that. So, so you're not always writing. But I remember that I pretty much wrote the rest of the book that I had left because I had a, been thinking about that book for several years. So I had yeah. chapters already written. And, and right. so um, I took the entire month of September and I just wrote, I write, I read, I researched and I wrote uh, in any free minute, any free moment I had. And by the first week of October, I was done with the manuscript, with the first draft. So then that's where that process of editing and everything starts. So, um, yeah, from October to April really was the – it's in the hands of the publishers, and now let's go ahead with it and, and see where yeah. we go. So, so it's been a great exactly. journey. That's great. And, yeah, one of my favorite parts of the process, actually, is towards um, – right before publication date, right before it's set to be sent to the printers, is actually – choosing and designing the cover image. Um, so that's something that's, that's done here in-house. And, of course, there's input from many different creative teams and the author. And, um, of course, with our many children's books with the contracts with the illustrators, um, their input as well. And 
when you think about what goes into a good book cover, it has to obviously grab your attention, but also represent what's inside accurately. Um, I think for these three titles that we're representing today are some of my favorites just because they have, I love classic Catholic art. <laughs> and if every book had, you know, Renaissance art on it, I would buy it <laughs> without even looking inside sometimes. So um, that's one of my favorite parts is just representing the contents of the book through compelling imagery um, that is kind of serves the same purpose as an icon, really, to point souls towards the, the contemplation of God. Yeah, so a lot of publishers do different things with book covers, and and so you have your style of book covers, and I love my new book cover, How They Love Mary, and I've, I've been really impressed with all the covers, uh, with the books I've done with Sophia Institute Press. There's another publisher of which I'm associated with that uh, they actually have like a book cover committee, and so they have mm. like three books, three book covers that they come up with, and then they send them out to the committee, and so then we fill out a survey monkey response saying, well, this is what I think about this cover, so you analyze the covers, and then you say, this is the cover I think you should pick. So uh, it's very interesting to hear how book covers come to be. Right, definitely. There's a lot of thought that goes into it and so much brainstorming, and that's why, you know, working in such a dynamic office where uh, we can talk out how, because everyone will perceive it differently, and uh, the images that come to mind in one person's mind will be different than than someone else's. So um, it's very revelatory and actually helps you get to know um, your coworkers as well. So we're going to talk about three different titles, which I think are a great reflection for Holy Week, especially. Maybe you pick one of those titles and say, I want to read this book. But what's the value of spiritual reading? Why should we read spiritual books? Because we know that you could go to Barnes & Noble and you can look at their bookshelves. They have lots mm-hmm. of fiction. They have lots of nonfiction. So there's so many books that are competing for our attention in a secular realm. Why should mm-hmm. a person read a spiritual book? Right. Well, I can certainly sympathize with feeling overwhelmed with the absolute massive amount of options for reading out there. Um, I'm someone who always wanted to read literally every book that had ever been written, which is not possible. So that's when organization and sort of the hierarchy of reading, uh, developing well-curated reading lists comes into play. Um, Spiritual reading, when you think about it, is really the most important reading that a Catholic can do in their life. Um, The passion, of course, especially of our Lord is the most important event to have ever occurred that gained our salvation. So to focus on this, even to the exclusion of all else, would well serve us and help us get to heaven, which is the ultimate goal. Um, I find that contemplating on the four last things really helps me to prioritize in my life, but especially in reading and deciding what will be beneficial for my soul prioritizing my soul and the souls of others, evangelizing. Um, I think it was St. Alphonsus who talks about a vision that he had been given of hell and how in hell a doctor who was an expert at his field in this life did not remember any of what he had learned from his many years of study and the thousands of books that he had read because ultimately he missed the point of this life, which was to get to heaven. So I found that pretty sobering, but also a good argument for spiritual reading, because if we spend time reading about um, any other topic, really, it's not necessarily bad, but if it's not helping us direct our lives towards heaven and towards the virtues, then ultimately, at the end of our lives, it will have been wasted time. So spiritual reading, on the other hand, is reading that 
can be a prayer in and of itself. It helps cultivate in our soul not only the virtues, but also just the the sense of God, the, the sense of fidelium, the, the, of the faith, that we place ourselves in the presence of God. Um, it's a good practice, as I'm sure you know, and your listeners know, to, to pray even before you read, that you gain the spiritual benefits of the reading material at hand. Um, and also helps us to discern good from evil and right from wrong. There's so much sophistry out there that is, you know, words without meaning, um, arguments that go nowhere and are not founded in any sort of me- metaphysical truths. And I think a lot of what's published today in, in the secular realm tends towards that. Um, but with good Catholic books, especially these reprints, which bear imprimaturs from from bishops from the mid-20th century, you know that what you're getting is something that is approved by the Church that has been found efficacious for decades in souls seeking heaven, um, and something that can only help you grow closer to our Lord, which at the end of the day is the only thing that matters. So there are three spiritual books that we are going to be talking about, and I, I just had this thought, and uh, I know that this apparition of Our Lady is controversial, and but I just did an episode uh, a few episodes back on Garamendel. And the reason I did the mm-hmm. Garamendel episode was just because I've had such a great curiosity about Garamendel that I wanted to hear an expert's opinion on it. And one of the things that Our Lady supposedly told the visionaries was that they should meditate on the passion of Christ. And so it seems that these three books that we're going to talk about would be a fitting way for us to meditate on the passion, most especially. Now, there are three books, like I said, and I'm just going to list the names here. And there's two of them that I think somewhat are connected uh, in, in a sense. So the first one is 33 Years in the Holy Land, What Jesus Saw from Bethlehem to Golgotha. The second is What Jesus Saw from the Cross. And the third is The Pain of Christ and the Sorrow of God, Lenten Meditations. So as I think of this, what Jesus saw, the first book, 33 Years in the Holy Land, and then the second one, what Jesus saw from the cross, they're both by the same author, A.G. Sertelanges. I'm sure you'll correct me on that. So. Uh, <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> Close enough. So, uh, but that's a very curious thing to think about. What did Jesus see when he walked the Holy Land? Maybe you've been a pilgrim to the Holy Land, and so you walked the land where Jesus walked. And so now this book is helping us to place us there and say, well, what did Jesus see? The Jesuits, of course, recommend imaginative prayer, placing ourselves in the scene of a scripture passage. So in a sense, then we see it and we can maybe say, well, this is what Jesus saw. But here we have this. So tell us, what did Jesus see as he lived his life on earth? Yes. So these two books uh, by Father Sertelange were written actually while he was undertaking a one-year pilgrimage in the Holy Land. So he was a great devotee of the Holy Land pilgrimage his entire life. And of course, this was early 20th century, pre-Second World War. So he was able to gain access to a lot of these sites that are now more difficult for pilgrims um, to get to. And he wrote these books in tandem to be able to give those of us who can't necessarily travel to the Holy Land um, as close an experience as possible to use a narrative style in order to illuminate the Gospels um, and also to just provide the cultural geographic um, and language background that we, uh, especially in the West, might lack um, when reading the Gospels. So 
these books are a wonderful supplement to the gospel narratives because, of course, we know the facts. Uh, we've heard them every Sunday. We, we've read the gospels ourselves. But we must remember that the gospels were written uh, first and foremost for those who were familiar with the Holy Land and who knew about the customs and and the meanings of words and the connections to the Old Testament, for example. So Father really fills in those gaps in these books, and he uses the places that Jesus literally walked in as his anchors. Um, of course, as Catholics, the principle of sacramentality is very central to everything we believe. So this is why um, this is the principle behind the incarnation itself, God become man, why we receive the Eucharist physically, why we venerate relics physically, and why we make pilgrimages. So we believe that there is an importance to the body. We're not Protestants or Gnostics who totally uh, reject the physical realm. And so therefore, these sites, these holy sites, do have a certain sanctity to them um, from which we can learn and from which graces flow. So in the first book, 33 Years in the Holy Land, Father takes us through, um, starting in Bethlehem, all the way up until Golgotha, where the second book picks up. And of course, a large portion of our Lord's life was not public, right? Only He only had that three-year ministry um, and before that, the 30 years from the Gospel accounts, we really don't have all that much information about. So he fills in those gaps by um, basically focusing on place and in focusing on where Jesus was and what he could be presumably doing, um, he speaks to our Lord's virtues. So, for example, there's a chapter called The Hidden Life of Christ, where he focuses on Jesus' time in Nazareth, living as an obedient son, as a member of the Holy Family. He uses this as an opportunity to discuss Jesus' humility, which, of course, we see all the way up through the crucifixion as, as his prime virtue. Um, because, of course, uh, even as God, Jesus lived as an obedient son in the natural structure of the Holy Family. And this is really illustrated, of course, in the finding in the temple, where he's teaching the scribes, uh, you know, this cosmic knowledge that they would have had no conception of being able to understand um, through being God, um, but then also obey his, his parents in the same, in the same stroke. Um, another really interesting component of this book is the section devoted to Jesus and the Jewish authority. Um, this works in tandem with another chapter called The Prayer of Jesus, in which Father walks us through what Jesus' life as a practicing Jew would have been like and which sites would have been important, including the temple, his father's house, um, how he would have prayed in Nazareth, and how he would have prayed with the apostles, um, all, of course, a precursor to himself as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So it's a very rich book that uh, gives us a lot of the background that makes us understand um, the gospel narratives in a really much deeper way. So that's 33 years on the Holy Land, what Jesus saw. And so it's giving us, you know, some of his own experiences, as you mentioned, with Jewish authority and such. Now, what did Jesus see from the cross? We know that as Jesus was nailed on the cross and lifted above the earth there with the two prisoners mm -hmm. on the side, well, Jesus, looking to his left, looking to his right, saw those prisoners to the one he actually said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So he sees them and he sees the heart really of that, mm -hmm. of that good thief. And then Jesus looks down and he sees Mary and John and Mary Magdalene and maybe a few others. He sees mm -hmm. the centurion and the soldiers who are around. So he sees a lot, I can imagine, from the cross. So 
What is Father's take on this? Yeah, so this is a very fascinating uh, narrative structure where we are anchored at the cross, and from there, it's just quite interesting that really all of salvation history was visible, not only in the people, but also the sites, the places that our Lord could see. So, yes, of course, um, he breaks it basically into two sections. So the first is the places, and then the second is the people. So, like you mentioned, the the good thief, um, on either side, he could see into his heart, he could see his soul, and through him, he, he could see towards heaven, where um, our Lord's redemption would would bring um, anyone who, who follows the example of, of the good thief. Um, you could also see, of course, his enemies. So some of my favorite portrayals of the crucifixion show just the absolute mob that had built up around the foot of the cross and the, the hatred that was just being um, directed at our Lord. And that's something that we all we know about, and it, it's portrayed very well in movies such as The Passion, for example. But uh, the majority of people who were at the foot of the cross hated Jesus, <laughs> and um, even those that he thought were his friends. The, uh, of course, they chose Barabbas instead of him when a week earlier he had been their favorite and they had hailed him coming into the city. So the um, Father ties this to the agony in the garden and just the, the pain that Jesus saw watching people choose the opposite of him um, and and therefore, you know, placing their souls at risk and just how he approached this still with nothing but great love. Um, in terms of the places that were visible from the cross, Jesus was crucified on the east side of Jerusalem, outside of the gate of Ephraim. So typically this is one of the reasons why Mass had been said what's known as ad orientum or towards the east. And he was facing west, which is he could see over the wall into the city. And from there, he could see many sites that were significant in his life um, and the Passion, but also throughout all of salvation history. So the first site that Father focuses on is the temple, so his father's house. Um, Jesus, looking at the temple, knew, of course, that it would be destroyed, you know, 40 years after his death. Um, but he also knew that, as we know from the Gospels, at the moment of his death, the, the veil would be torn um, between the Holy of Holies and um, the outer part of the temple, so signifying, of course, the Father's grief, but also um, the, you know, Jesus opened heaven to us as humans through through his sacrifice. Um, from there, Father also posits that Jesus could likely see the upper room where the Last Supper took place, and uses that chapter as a beautiful meditation on the Eucharist. Um, he could see the Mount of Olives, perhaps, from where he ha- was hanging, and then also he could see his tomb, where St. Joseph of Arimathea would, would lie him just a few hours afterwards. So uh, it's a great encapsulation of the, like like we've said, the ultimate moment in human history that secured our salvation and how um, the world turns but the cross stays the same. And all of these sites orbit the cross. Um, and to place the cross at the center of the narrative is really what we need to do in our own lives as well. And what the church founded on. You have become familiar with these two classical works by this priest. I'm wondering what takeaways or what impact has discovering his writing had for you? Yeah, so the first thing is I really want to go on a pilgrimage now uh, to the Holy Land, of course. I've always wanted to, but just reading this and um, just the, the imagery that he uses and 
the the connections that he makes. Um, I just really wish I was there <laughs> where he was standing. Um, but also, this it helped me to meditate better on the mysteries of the rosary. I think that um, the same argument to be made for spiritual reading is inherent in the repetition of the rosary, because in the same, we, we pray the same mysteries over and over, but we don't become bored of them. They don't become stale. It's the repetition of the most important events to ever occur on the earth, um, and the supernatural graces that flow continuously from those events. And so in, there's a lot to be said for a breadth of reading, but also depth, I think is the most important. And, <clears throat> Reading these books has helped me to just kind of delve deeper into the mysteries of the rosary and using that as a jumping point. Um, I also have, I think it's a, a great idea to use religious art or sacred art, some sort of imagery to ground your meditations on the rosary as well, because that is surrounding yourself with the landscape of um, these events and of our Lord's life in a way, the closest way possible, short of being there yourself. Well, that's wonderful what you said that, you know, it's kind of like going on a pilgrimage. And actually, a lot, one of the promotional pieces that was written about this was on Catholic Link, 10 Ways to Make a Pilgrimage This Lent Without Leaving Home. So, in a that's sense, great. you can go that. on this... <laughs> You can go on this virtual pilgrimage, and then uh, and then it creates as you discover and learn more about the Holy Land. It creates that longing, as you said, uh, to go there and to want to see these places of, of Jesus's birth and his death and his resurrection. Right, exactly. Now, there's one other book that we're going to talk about, and it's called The Pain of Christ and the Sorrow of God, Lenten Meditations. So we might be a little late since this is coming out at the end of March, but nevertheless, maybe this is a good like reminder for next year. You can uh, think about this book and maybe use this book for your Lenten meditation. I, is this a book that's set up day by day through Lent, uh, this book by Father Gerald Vaughn? So this book is divided into um, seven chapters, and it's not day by day, but it's actually only 100 pages. So I think that this would be the perfect book for Holy Week itself, or even possibly can be read on Good Friday, um, even between the hours of, of noon and three when um, Jesus was hanging on the cross. It's very... Uh, Father Van was another Dominican priest, um, somewhat of a contemporary of Father Serge Solange, and he was a quite prolific author. He wrote about 50 books, devotionals, um, in his lifetime. He had a devotion to Thomism, um, and this is really one of his most popular books because it is so accessible. Um, he uses the events of the Passion to discuss virtues that we can enact in our own lives in order to imitate Christ and to imitate other members uh, of the Church who were, who were present at the Passion. So, in particular, his chapter about Our Lady was very inspiring to me. Um, he names it the stillness of Mary. And when we think about, as we discussed before, the enemies of Christ being so active and um, vociferous at the foot of the cross, Mary is the complete opposite of that. She is quiet and still and suffering with her heart united to our Lord's. Um, Father Van says, be still. The stillness and the silence of Mary are the signs not of defeat, but of intense and creative activity. So I think that's a wonderful reminder as we can feel quite helpless in today's world with everything going on, um, that 
really a return to prayer and to stillness, to meditation, to Eucharistic adoration is the antidote to that. Yeah, well, I'm glad that people who are listening didn't miss the boat on this one and uh, that they might be able to take this in. And I really like that suggestion. What do I do on Good Friday? Because we go to church, we go to the Good Friday service, and that's maybe an hour, hour and 15 minutes. But do we spend the rest of the day thinking and meditating about what Jesus did for me? So I like your suggestion, 112 pages. You could read this really on Good Friday. Or maybe, you know, it starts with the agony in the garden. So you could actually Mm -hmm. begin uh, at Holy Thursday when you have that time of reposition, uh, the altar of repose uh, where people stay after the Mass on Holy Thursday and pray kind of an imitation of Jesus praying in the garden. So uh, I think that this is a wonderful book as well uh, for that. And so I appreciate that recommendation. Yeah, and I know some, this is a favorite here at Sophia, and some of my coworkers actually read this every year, um, either on Good Friday or during Holy Week as a return just to, um, because it's so effective in meditation on, on the sacrifice of our Lord and in, instilling that sorrow for our sins and uh, just the sense of a love of Christ. So it's a tried and true method. I hope to make it a tradition for myself. Yeah, and I'm even thinking as a preacher, you know, uh, I have to preach on Good Friday. I have to preach on Palm Sunday. So for Mm -hmm. me, one of these works, you know, could definitely be something that I utilize to enhance my preaching. What Jesus saw from the cross as we think about Palm Sunday or his pain and his sorrow uh, in this book uh, by Father Gerald Van. So I, I'm very grateful that uh, you shared these titles, and maybe one of these titles has spoken to somebody listening today, and you can go and you can acquire them from Sophia Institute Press right on their website. And, of course, maybe a local Catholic bookstore has them available as well. So uh, anything else you'd like to share, Kristen? I would just say in closing that I think it was St. John Vianney who said that no one can ever estimate the value of a good spiritual book. I'm I'm paraphrasing, but just again to uh, that point that we made at the beginning, that spiritual reading can only ever have good effects on your soul. And so you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to take copious amounts of notes on it, but just allow the the Lord to work in your soul through these works um, and through these, these priests who he placed on earth to lead you to heaven. It's great advice that you are giving to us, especially from a saintly priest like the Curie of ours. So thanks so much for joining me today on How They Love Mary, Kristen. Thank you so much for having me, Father. God bless. Thanks for listening to today's show. I hope that my conversation with today's guest was one that enriched you spiritually and also helped you to foster a deeper love for the Blessed Virgin Mary. If you enjoyed this podcast, could you do me a favor? Go over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the podcast so that others might find it as a recommended podcast from other Catholic podcasts that they might listen to. And if you don't mind, share about the show on social media so that your friends and family might come to find it and be enriched by our conversations as well. And if you don't mind, you can follow me on social media at FR Edward Looney on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And this show, How They Love Mary, will soon be a book available from Sophia Institute Press. You can already go over to their website and pre-order How They Love Mary. Thanks so much for listening. May God bless you today. Know of my prayers for you. And may Mary pray for you today and always.